When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to our third and final episode of this Halloween trilogy, which which you don't have to see as a Halloween-related thing, but it's just like a, you know, why not? Um, festivities and, and, and so forth. If it is Halloween while you're, while you're listening, get your sweets ready before people come and TP your, your house. So get them some sweets and they'll be happy. Um, so if you have missed any of the first two episodes, we have been discussing, that's Dr. Shoham Das uh, and I, forensic psychiatrist, that's right, isn't it? Yes. It is, yep. That's right. From a Psych for Sore Minds YouTube channel where he talks about all different kinds of true crime, uh, the psychology behind it, like this episode, in fact. Um, we've been discussing, ooh, what have we done? Anders Breivik, uh, you'll know who he is, I imagine. Um, and Swedish twins, Sabina and Ursula Eriksson, who who ran out in front of traffic and and one of them killed uh, somebody as well. Um, and we're talking about psychosis and, and mental illness and what is and what isn't. And it's been a really fascinating fascinating insight from Dr. Shaham Das. I keep saying your full name because people can look you up. Why not? Um, so in this episode... And do check out Psych for Soul Minds, it is brilliant. And do come to my podcast if you're listening to this on that, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. This episode is the Broadmoor cannibal Peter Bryan. I'll just do a little intro on him. Um, So Peter grew up the youngest of seven children in the late 60s and 70s, left school by the age of 15, went on to teach cooking lessons at his local soup kitchen. Um, In 1994, he was sent to Rampton Secure Hospital after admitting to the murder of 21-year-old shop assistant Nisha Sheth, beaten to death a year earlier by him with a hammer. By 2001, so seven years later, he was thought to have made great progress and shown maturity and good behaviour and was let out on a six-month trial under the care of a psychiatrist and social worker. He continued to improve in the early 2000s. He was released in 2004 and a few hours later killed his friend Brian Cherry. The victim was found dismembered and officers found a frying pan on the stove with brain tissue in it. He was sent back to Broadmoor Hospital and soon killed fellow patient Richard Loudwell. Peter said that had he not been interrupted, he intended to eat his victim's flesh. A 2011 inquest ruled that he hadn't been watched properly or been properly assessed by staff. He's unlikely to ever be released. Shahom, what happens when an inquest like that takes place? So it's it's usually very time consuming and you will have a couple of independent people, some, some people from the actual trust, some people outside the trust, and they will interview everybody that's even remotely related to the case. So whether that's the the psychiatrist, the family members, the nurses on the ward, and they kind of take witness statements and they go through it all and they try and find out the points where things went wrong and what can be improved. And it is just a a very sort of long, slow, time-consuming process. And I have to say, sometimes they're very helpful or sometimes it's a little bit obvious what went wrong and you could probably tell the answer even before you went through the inquest, but you kind of... I think <clears throat> politically and managerially, you're kind of obliged to go through the motions. What happened to Peter Bryan? Because uh, when I read that he was teaching, you know, uh, giving cooking lessons at his local soup kitchen, that that 
seems to suggest he's a very good person. Obviously, the the soup kitchen people was a bit ominous given what he went on to do in terms of the cannibalism. Uh, what went wrong? So I can only presume that it was his schizophrenia. So I have said this in a previous episode, but I just want to make clear that the vast majority of people with serious mental illnesses, including schizophrenia, are not violent or dangerous. But there is a small subsection that are, and that's literally my specialism, what I do for a living. Uh, I, I didn't get the benefit of interviewing him in person, but the f- but some of the things that he said certainly sound psychotic to me. So you talked about his when he killed his... his um, friend Brian Cherry and you said that the police found brains in his frying pans and he basically said I ate his brains with butter it was really nice so I think that the most the most obvious answer would be that his schizophrenia the symptoms of his schizophrenia involved killing these random people because Mm. there was just such a randomness in who he chose and also the very fact that in at least the, la- the latter two cases, he wanted to eat parts of them. So I wonder whether was, he had delusions about what would happen if he ate part of them, like whether he could absorb their powers or some of their intelligence, for example. Because hmm. often the schizophrenia, particularly with the Ericsson twins we discussed in the last episode, that it sort of leads to paranoia. So the assumption was that she killed her victim because she was paranoid that he would do something to her or something would happen to Whereas this seems to not have been paranoia so much as one wanting to yeah eat eat the brain and become a superhuman I'm, I'm completely completely riffing here so i don't know yeah yeah so um, unfortunately it's not really clear exactly what symptoms he was suffering with because it's not really out in the in the public domain but yeah par- paranoia by far leads to the most violence and it's usually what you said it's a preemptive strike so i've i've assessed people who have wrongly had delusions about their neighbors being pedophiles for example and would it randomly attack their neighbors when you have grandiosity so that's when people believe that they have abilities or powers it doesn't usually lead to violence but in this case because the 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 suspected delusion was so specific i i eat a bit of you and i get power um, you can kind of understand in his warped mind why that makes sense. Yeah. What do you do with somebody then? You know, he was he went to prison for murder, but he was thought to have made good progress. Only seven years later, I would have thought that murder, you know, you'd be locked up for decades. But seven years later, he's thought to have made good progress, let out under a six-month trial under the care of a psychiatrist and a social worker. Does that seem, I guess hindsight's a wonderful thing, but does that, it seems like seven yeah. years is not a very long time someone to be in prison for murder so the, the difference between a prison and a psychiatric unit is well there's a couple of differences one is the ethos so a prison is all about punishment and when you have a prison sentence it's a finite time so you know that at this date you're going to be released you know unless you commit further offenses in prison whereas in a psychiatric unit the ethos is about rehabilitation so right from day one you're trying to treat them and make them less risky uh, and there's no finite sentence. So it all depends on their progress. So if they take their medication straight away, if the medication clearly gets rid of their psychotic symptoms, if they engage in their psychotherapy, so they talk to the psychologists on the ward about what led them up to their, their crime and how to avoid those factors, if there are no problems on their behaviours on the ward, so there's no aggression with the other patients, with the other nurses, if they do all of those things, well, that could be quite quick. So I'd say typically for somebody who's on the quicker end of the spectrum, that would maybe be two or three years. Uh, And then you start testing them on leave. And if they come back on time, they don't come back drunk and they stick to all the boundaries, then you have to start, you increase the leave. And if they stick to that all well, 
then you start thinking about discharge. So basically the point I'm trying to make is there's not really a set time period. It's not about time passing. It's about milestones being um, reached. Mm. So if there's problems in any of those things, so if they're having arguments on the ward, then that will slow down their progress. So if the symptoms had all gone and if his behavior was was um, pretty stable, then I don't think seven years is that long a period of time because it's not about punishment for the murder. It's about his mental state becoming safe. Hmm. So, so I said he... if, uh, uh, so I'm just mm. going to say this quickly. Go on. I said if, because it's all about if. So that uh, I'm assuming that the assessments were done properly and that his mental state was stable. I mean, I can't completely rule out that he might have actually been unwell and he might have been violent, but he was just masking it. And the psychiatrist couldn't assess it properly. So would he have been the whole time? Because he, he, you know, re-offended fairly quickly after coming out. So is he in there hiding the real him the whole time? I think there's a couple of possibilities. One is exactly what you said. So he could have had these murderous, dastardly uh, <laughs> thoughts and intentions the whole time. And he just masked them until he got released. Equally possible, in fact, arguably more likely, is that at the time that he was in a psychiatric ward, he was taking his medication, he was staying away from alcohol and drugs. Whereas once you get out into the big wide world and you don't have this level of supervision and you've got more autonomy, then it's very tempting. It happens to patients that I see quite regularly. They stop taking their medication because, you know, it's, it's, it's got nasty side effects, makes you sedated, makes you put on weight. If you don't truly believe you need it, stop your medication, maybe you know, have a drink or take some drugs. So there's a lot of destabilizers out in the in the real wide world compared to a psychiatric unit. Um, so this is this is one of the reasons because I've always wondered why people are so intent on pleading insanity because it's it's not nice being in a psychiatric ward, um, or there might be preferable to pr- prison, I suppose. But I suppose that's one of the main advantages if you are a psychopath, say, of convincing people that you're mentally unwell because there's a chance you could get out within a few years rather than decades. That's true. That's true. But the the opposite also happens. So some of our patients need to be rehabilitated way past the tariff for the equivalent sentence if they went to prison. It all depends on on how well they respond to medication and how well they engage in all the therapy. Mm. What were the, the shortcomings in this case in Broadmoor Hospital that allowed one patient to kill another that was when you know later on that was his third murder i believe yeah that's right so i think that the shortcomings are in two major areas one was that the way he was let out of the seclusion room and the other one was the the lack of observation in the dining hall where 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 he actually killed richard loudwell so just to very uh, briefly describe for our listeners and viewers the seclusion room is like a it's kind of like the the modern day equivalent to the antiquated version of a padded cell. So it's where you put patients temporarily when they're extremely dangerous and agitated. So uh, Peter Bryan was put in this after he came from Belmarsh, I believe. So that was uh, shortly after he'd killed his friend, Brian Cherry. And it's absolutely appropriate to put somebody in there with such a high level of risk just to observe them for a few days. And it's usually for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks at most that you keep somebody in, in this kind of environment. And you go, the nurses and doctors go in regularly to give food, to take blood pressure, et cetera, and to give medication to make sure the patient's safe. Um, so from my understanding, the inquest said that he was let out after four days without a detailed mental state examination. So he could have had all these psychotic beliefs. He could have still had either a direct intention, I'm, I'm definitely going to kill somebody within the next few days because I need to eat their brains or a kind of more 
indirect kind of background paranoid idea of you know these thoughts buzzing around and at some point i might act on them i might not but either way from my understanding of the inquest it wasn't explored so he seemed quite settled at the time and he was answering basic questions okay and he didn't seem that particularly agitated so i think they took his presentation on face value and and released him and he was put on a relatively low level of observation, so general observation. So I think what should have happened is they should have been detailed, repeated questioning of his mental state to be 100% clear or as clear as possible about what his intentions were, what his thoughts were, whether these paranoid ideas were still in his head, number one. And number two, even when he was let out, he should have at least for for a couple of days been on a high level of observation, maybe you know 15 minute or maybe even one-to-one nurse observation. So there's a nurse with him all the time. So I think that's one massive area. I think he was let out without the kind of proper risk management steps put in place. And I think the other massive area was just the level of observation. So especially in Broadmoor, which as our viewers will know, is a high secure uh, forensic hospital. So of all the different levels, it is literally the highest. So it's for the most dangerous mentally disordered offenders. So there should be somebody kind of looking at all parts of the ward at all times. And Mm. I think that they saw that the two men were in the dining hall together and there were no reason to, there was no agitation or aggression or arguments between the two men at the time that the staff member left to to go off and do something else. So they assumed that everything would be okay. And then Peter Bryan sort of strangled um, Richard Loudwell and bashed his head a couple of times against the floor and, you know, like injured him extremely severely. So somebody should have been, um, you know, in that room looking at all the patients. So all the patients should have been, there should be knowledge of what the patients where the patients were and what they were doing at any given time yeah it's it's a it's a massive uh mistake i suppose that cost a life and and if you're be if you're in this kind of place and you're being murdered at that point you must be waiting for security to come in at any moment or, or someone to help and there's just no help it's horrific it is it is um to be to be fair to the staff at broadmoor i i worked there myself as a registrar many years ago uh, it is a very hard environment to work in. And I think it's it's important for the public to appreciate that there are literally hundreds of, hundreds of patients that come and go. And although incidents do occur regularly, they're not, it, there's not a constant threat of danger. So it's quite hard to know who to observe for how long at what point, because there's, there's, mm. there's far more patients than there are staff members. You know, there's something like three times the amount of patients than there are staff members. So not there's not enough staff for everybody to be watching everybody constantly at, you know, all the time. So you have to prioritize who you think is the most agitated. And sometimes sure. staff get it wrong. Or in this case, somebody can act relatively calm and settled and then suddenly commit explosive unpredictable violence yeah so i guess the point i'm trying to make is is it's easy to kind of bang on the broadmoor staff but it's a, it's a very hard job and the vast majority of the time from my experience they do it very well yeah it's another case i suppose of, of hindsight being 2020 uh because you know we all know him as the the cannibal the horrific murder of several people and all this stuff whereas i guess the the, the people working in broadmoor were seeing probably a mild-mannered nice man day after day after day for months on end uh, and then suddenly something like this happens. So Yeah, and just to add to that, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that there would have been other people on his ward who would have committed that level of violence, given it was Broadmoor, who have literally not stepped a foot out of line for years uh, because, for example, the medication is keeping their symptoms at bay. So it's quite hard to differentiate who's going to suddenly commit violence when there are so many potentially dangerous people who seem very stable. It's such a hard job. It's a little bit like they say in football about goalkeepers that if uh, 
when when there's a, a game where they're they're winning very easily, the goalkeeper is the hardest job because they have to concentrate because they hardly they're hardly ever involved, and then they suddenly might be in the last minute of the game and they've got to be really on their toes. It's a similar thing. You've got to always always be vigilant, I suppose, and it's much worse that somebody could get murdered than somebody could concede a goal in in, in football, I suppose. But what what do you do with him now, Peter Bryan, and people of his ilk? Is he that's just what solitary confinement or something? The rest of their lives? Um, no. So I, that all boils down to if you're able to get rid of these symptoms and these beliefs. So for I, I don't know specifically about the case of Peter Bryan um, because it's not really out in the public domain. But if he had these beliefs permanently. And if we threw all the antipsychotics we can at high doses in combinations, injecting them, but he still had these beliefs, then the chances are he would never be safe enough to leave hospital. And there certainly are patients like that in Broadmoor. So when I worked there, I worked in the high dependency unit, which was one of the highest risk categories. And the patients in there were, most of them were in there for long-term seclusion. So they were in their cells 23 hours a day, uh, which is usual in some prisons, but it's very unusual in secure hospitals because, as I said before, the ethos is to rehabilitate. And they do have some degree of freedom and, and they're made as comfortable of, as possible. So, you know, they're given food that they like, for example, they're let out of their cells. And there's, it's, it's actually quite fascinating to see some of them have had beefs or arguments with each other before. So there's literally like a timetable of who can be let out at the same time and who's safe ah. to be around the other person. So the, the staff have to coordinate that. They're let out gently and some of them have to be followed around by staff because they've got the potential to be violent. Then they go back into their rooms. So they have some sort of semblance of living. So that's one extreme end where you can't get rid of the symptoms. If you can get rid of the symptoms, and I would argue with Peter Bryan, you probably can, the very fact that he had been discharged uh, before, then you do the rehabilitation that I was talking about. So you do the you do the medication, the psychotherapy, um, the eventual leave. But I would do it really, really slowly, given that he's kind of fooled the system before yeah and given given that his delusions are so potentially dangerous so if i was in charge of his care i would try and rehabilitate him but i'd do extremely slowly so i think you know once bitten twice shy i wouldn't even consider a step down to a medium secure unit unless it was you know five six years of absolutely no problems and then even a medium secure unit i'd be looking to have a very slow stream rehabilitation process and i'd want to see long 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 periods of times without any kind of aggression or violence or him reporting any kind of paranoid or grandiose delusions mm. so it, 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 theoretically it's possible that he could go down the stages and be released but if you're in charge of his care you would be so ultra cautious because of the potential risk that you know you'd have to do it really 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 carefully yeah because every time he's got a chance he's gone out and killed someone you know imagine staring into the eyes of a man who you know probably wants to eat your brains yeah wow <laughs> part and parcel of the job yeah Oh yeah, you've also, had that. Yeah, but also you would you would kind of so of all the patients, especially in a place like Broadmoor, you would prioritize who is the most risky. So if you think this man potentially could be violent today, then you would set up the interview or the assessment to mitigate that risk. So you would maybe see you'd open the cell door and have him sit in the back of his cell with a couple of nurses on either side, for example. Uh, or if you got him into an interview room, you would make sure that there's a nurse in the corner and that there are other people. So most of the, the windows are kind of big 
um, see-through plastic panes and boardboards. So you'd make sure there's somebody constantly watching you. Obviously, you don't have the resources to do that all the time with all the patients. You just end up never getting your, your work done and you, the nurses will never be able to do anything if they constantly have to watch you. So you have to prioritise who you think is the most dangerous. Yeah. Man. Is cannibalism very rare? Yeah, it's extremely rare. And I think this is related to his own specific delusions about the reasons behind eating other people's brains but yeah it's extremely rare i don't think i've ever uh, i've never seen it in a case uh, of a patient that i've assessed mm. i was looking there's a list on wikipedia of cannibalistic uh incidents uh and they do seem pretty well, well pretty rare in in each country but across the world the world is a huge place of course it seems to happen sort of once or twice a year uh it's just it's just, it's just something that we can't get our heads around i did an episode with somebody who was forced into eating flesh this was a man um who survived the andes plane crash uh and they had to do that and it was the most horrific oh. thing they could yeah it was I, it's one of my favorite ever episodes uh just because it was it was hard to get hold of him he's 73 now because it was a while ago and he talks yeah. about they survived for three or four month i think 72 days or something it was actually so two or three months in like freezing cold conditions so they couldn't this is a bit graphic but they, they couldn't even sort of cook the meat so just they had to eat frozen bits of flesh off of the Jeez. dead dead uh yeah their friends this was just supposed to be a rugby trip um to chile and then uh then as as they would die the rest of them would eat them and so on uh over the Jeez. weeks which was yeah just the worst experience of their lives whereas this this guy, you know, he he actually Peter Bryan actually, you know, chose and wants to do it. It's so it's like inhuman. I suppose that's why it captures the imagination to such an extent. Yeah, yeah. So the the man that you interviewed, presumably, like he 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 stayed alive because of what he did. Like had he not yeah. done that, he would have died almost certainly. Yeah, and, and for that reason, he uh, d- doesn't like the term cannibalism because that was. Uh, when they when they were found eventually, which was the most remarkable day ever, because nobody expected to find them. The, these guys had never ever even uh, seen the snow before, and because it was the Andes to cross from Uruguay over Argentina to Chile, uh, they were you know so they didn't even have like their shoes and socks or you know they were wearing like shorts and t-shirts and things, um, and it was minus like thirty centigrade or whatever and blizzards every single day, no food or anything around them. Um, so he he uses the word necrophagy i think it is necrophagy necrophagy uh because it's it's it doesn't have the same connotations that cannibalism does because cannibalism is often uh in in history it's a ritual or it's something that's done out of choice uh whereas what he did was was out of necessity um and they they used all sorts of cognitive biases to sort of help it you know uh to to sort of yeah to, to make it easier um so they they were all quite religious catholic people and they talked about the body of christ and that kind you know we're eating the body of christ and that kind of thing but at the same time some of them found it even harder being religious to do that kind of thing and there would be things like you know somebody's mother was there and or somebody's sister and then they died and so the 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 brother or the mother or the, somebody you know a family member still alive while everybody's eating their family member Jeez. just yeah the worst worst thing imaginable imaginable but then Peter Bryan, uh, you know, he 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 wanted to do it. Is is I don't know. Would he when he's out of the moments of psychosis, might he think, God, what was I, what was I doing? Why does that? That's horrible. Or what do you think? 
so in in terms of patients that I've assessed, it is quite variable. Sometimes they have a, they only have very patchy dis, distant memories of what they did, and they oh. don't feel connected to that person. So even though they they knew physically they did it, they feel like it's a completely different entity. And I think maybe that's a kind of defense mechanism as well, so they don't have to deal with this colossal level of guilt. But other patients I've assessed are the opposite of that. So they actually feel constantly guilty and, ve- and very sad about what they've done. Um, I, for memory, I think I did talk about this case with you um, when the very first time that we spoke about the 18-year-old girl who killed her nephew. So um, just very briefly for your listeners, she completely out of the blue, this 18-year-old girl who had no history of mental illness or antisocial behavior became psychotic, smothered and killed her nephew who she believed had demons living inside. So she felt compelled to do this. Yeah. The reason I'm bringing up this case is, is because it took us about 18 months to medicate her before the delusions finally uh, were treated. And at the end of all of that, she it, it's over a few weeks the reality of what she did seeped into her consciousness. So I think then she started, she realized what she'd done basically. Yeah. And, and uh, as you'd expect, she was massively um, just this, wrapped in guilt and shame in the tragedy of this case. And so we had to actually deal with her depression. So it affects different people in different ways. Uh, again, I think that's to do with your personality structure. It depends on your level of um, narcissism, your level of empathy, your kind of ability to accept responsibility and guilt. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I think that's is that a wrap do you think on on Peter Bryan? I think so. Yeah. I think we've covered it extensively. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, look, the worst case scenario people are listening and are thinking, "Oh, I wanted to hear more about that." And then they can go to a Psych for Sore Minds on YouTube and hear more about all different kinds of true crime psychological stuff. Um, or if they're already there, they can go to On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast to look at me talking to people like that guy who survived uh, by having to eat his friends in the Andes and lots of different strange and weird and controversial people uh, every week. Remember, there are two other episodes that we've done for this Halloween special about Anders Breivik and the Ericsson twins, uh, two, two women who, who ran into traffic and, and that kind of thing um yeah any any final thoughts a, a, about this shaham um just again even though it is a very very scary ca- case and even though this man peter bryan did actually kill when he's in broadmoor it is exceptionally rare i think there was just a number of quite unfortunate factors that lined up so again i don't want to give anybody nightmares this doesn't happen all the time <laughs> this is very very rare but i think it's, yeah. it's interesting to look at some of the the factors that contributed so thank you very much for having mm. me on and it was a pleasure to discuss it with you Thank you for coming on. It was it was lovely. Yeah, write to us, um, both of us. You'll find both of us on Twitter, Shahan Das, Andrew Gold. Uh, we love getting your messages and, and stuff. And uh, yeah, write in. Let us know if you want more of this stuff because maybe we'll find the time to make some more episodes in the future, but only if you tell us that you, you want them. And uh, have a good afternoon, evening or morning or whatever, wherever it is, where, whatever you're doing. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Stay sane. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.